We are in a series in the book of Ephesians called ID. And if you have your Bibles, pull out your Bible. Uh, this is a great thing to bring to church. And we do put a lot of the uh, verses up on the screen. But it's always great to have your Bible and to mark in it. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles here. And uh, you can pick one up. And it's just a great thing to do. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're at. We're going to start in verse 17, but let me just catch you up as to where we are at this point. Last week, we made a major turn in this whole study. This has been a, kind of a long study. We made a major turn because we went from the end of chapter 3 to the beginning of chapter 4. There's six chapters in Ephesians. That is a major sort of milestone as the Apostle Paul is writing this book because the whole first three chapters basically have been a description of what God does for us. Uh, there, are, there is not one command in the first three chapters except for the command to remember. And the point there is Paul just wants to say, listen, you need to remember everything that God has done for you. But then in chapter 4, there is a switch. And Paul now is going to talk about our responsibility. After God has done all of these things for us, now here is our responsibility. And he uses the words, he says, I urge you then... To live up to the call. To live up to, to live in a worthy manner up to the call that God has given you. And, uh, and at this point, the book now is going to talk about our responsibility. So last week we started, we talked about unity, and we made the point that Paul makes, which is you cannot become the person you want to be without being in community. God has wired you in a way and has set up things that you really need to be in community to become the person God wants you to be. That was last week. This week, he's going to make a really interesting point, kind of the, the other side of the coin. He's going to say, listen, while it's true that you need community to be who you're going to be, community cannot be everything that it should be unless you step up. In other words, you are formed by community, but community is also formed by you. In other words, our community, this community here, is only as strong as the individuals that make up the community. In other words, if we're all not doing so well, if we're really not following God, if our morality is kind of messed up, if we're just sort of a collective group of people that just are sort of barely making it, our community is not going to be that strong. So this now, today, we're going to talk about how do you become how do you build into the community? How do you become the person that God wants you to be? And uh, it's sort of an interesting thing. If you talk to coaches, uh, and I, I love sports, and I look at a lot of ESPN, I've heard a lot of coaches say this. They'll talk about the importance of teamwork, absolutely. But, you know, when they're pressed to it and they say, what makes your team great? What makes your team the best team? Uh, coaches will invariably fall back to this point. They'll say, we are good because we have really skilled players. And, you know, even if they're pressed to say, well, what about your teamwork? And they'll say, yes, teamwork's important, but here's the bottom line. If we don't have skilled players, we are not going to be a good team. And today what I want to talk to you about is how do you become a skilled player, basically? What is God doing in your life to make you a skilled player? So turn to... Uh, Verse 17, we're in chapter 4, verse 17, and we're going to look now at some really interesting instruction that Paul gives us about how do we change? How do we become a different kind of person? And in verse 17, it says these words. Why don't you read it with me? 
It says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now, here's, I, I need to point out a couple of things here, because that is a confusing phrase, even if you kind of understand it. To me, it's a little bit confusing. Here's the first thing he's going to say. When he says, I insist in the Lord, that is a very strong statement from Paul. He does make strong statements. This is not like, hey, here's an option. Here's an optional thing you could do. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm insisting on this. If you consider yourself somebody who is a Christ follower, if you consider yourself as somebody who's part of the church, then I'm going to insist. In fact, I'm not just going to insist. I'm going to insist in the Lord. In other words, God is giving the authority to this sort of urging. You need to do this. This is something that you need to pursue. And it's interesting. uh, Dallas Willard has said that grace is never opposed to effort. In other words, God wants us to try. Grace is opposed to earning. We don't try to earn God's love because God's already given it. So here Paul is going to say, listen, I want some effort here. This is going to be an important thing. You're going to have to focus on this. This is going to take something, uh, some focus. It's going to take some discipline. I want effort. He, He uses the term again that I want you to live in a certain way. And last week, if you were here, that word for live is actually... Uh, more uh, specifically translated, walk. Walk in this way. And it's really the reason uh, he uses that term is this is a journey. This isn't you all of a sudden arrive. In other words, what we talk about today, as far as your life changing, Paul's very clear. This is a journey. You don't just change overnight. It is a process that you go through. And then he uses this really interesting phrase. He says, uh, don't live as the Gentiles do. Now, what is a Gentile? A Gentile is a non-Jew. What a weird thing to say. Don't live as the Gentiles live. We're talking about Christianity here. We aren't talking about Judaism. And he says, don't live like somebody who's not a Jew. So why is he using this phrase? What does Gentile have to do with this? Well, here's the way that uh, they, they would have understood it. A lot of the people who had become Christians in Ephesus had been Gentiles. They were non-Jews. They didn't understand the Jewish culture, much less the Christian culture. And so as they came in, they understood that they were Gentiles. And here's simply what Paul is saying. When you look at the society around you, when you look at just the way things work in Ephesus, I don't want you to live in, with sort of the morality, with the perspective, with the worldview of the people that live in Ephesus of the Gentile world, of the people who are not God's people, who don't understand God's ways. I don't want you to live that way. Now, as soon as I say that, that sounds like such a radical prejudice statement against Gentiles. But here's really what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying all Gentiles are bad. He's not saying all Gentiles are immoral or all Gentiles don't think straight. What he's saying is, in general, as you look around Ephesus, wouldn't you admit This is not really a godly culture. This is not a God-fearing culture. And it comes out in all kinds of ways. And if you were here back when we started the series, we talked a little bit about the city of Ephesus. It was a fairly immoral place. Uh, They had a huge standard for acceptance, which was basically what makes you acceptable to other people in Ephesus is that you were the biggest You are the fastest, you are the most beautiful, you are the smartest. Those kinds of people were elevated. 
Those kinds of people were celebrated. Those kinds of people were followed, admired. Those kinds of people got the invites. And if you weren't, if you weren't, then it was very clear, we don't value you. In fact, there was a practice, remember I talked about, called infant exposure, which simply was this, that if a baby was born and there was some kind of deformity in the baby, uh, in, in the city of Ephesus, they actually had a place that you would take the baby, drop it off out in the wilderness, and leave it there to die. And they felt totally justified because their attitude was, if you're not the best and the brightest, if you aren't the smartest and the strongest, then you have no value to us. So that was the way that that society looked. And it worked out in everything then. So you have people, sort of the survival of the fittest, you have this idea of, I'm the most important. I'm, I've got to succeed at other people's expense. And so then you have all kinds of immorality coming out from that, of people treating people badly, of cheating and lying and murdering and rape. And there was all kinds of problems in that society. So here's simply what Paul is saying when he's saying, don't live as the Gentiles do. He's just saying, look around at the society. I want you to step out of that. I don't want you to live that way. And really what he's making a statement is he's saying, I want radical non-conformity. When you look at your society, I want radical non-conformity. Uh, the Bible word for that is holiness. That's what holiness means. Radical non-conformity. I want you to set yourself apart. I don't want you to act as sort of the tide of society pushes you to act. I want you to put a stake in the sand and say, that's not me. I'm not acting that way. That's what Paul is saying here. I want you to change. Now, that brings up a huge question. How do people change? And, and you're, I'm sure, interested because none of us live exactly the way we want to live. All of us can see shortcomings in our life. How do you change? And Paul is very insightful with this, very insightful about how people change because change occurs when belief changes. In other words, if you want to change the hardest thing to do is just to say, well, I'm just going to modify my behavior. I'm just going to act differently. But here's what Paul is going to tell us, and here's actually what psychologists tell us. You don't change because you just try to modify your behavior. You change when your belief about something changes. In fact, uh, there was a book that I read by a guy named uh, Schwartz, I think it was his last name, Glenn Schwartz. He's a doctor, and he wrote a book about how people change, and he called this the belief pyramid, and he said the foundation of change is belief. Beliefs lead to values, and values finally lead to behaviors. And the point that he's making is if you want the behavior to change, don't dive in at the behavior, because eventually you will always line up with what you believe. You will always behave in accordance to what your beliefs and values are. So if you're really interested in changing, then change your belief. Change the way you think about things. And eventually, your behavior will change as well. And you probably recognize that in your life. If you've ever changed in an area, it probably wasn't because you just tried really, 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 really hard to change. It's because you started thinking differently about it. They tell us if we want to change uh, our weight as far as diet goes, the worst thing you can do is to diet. Have you ever heard that? The worst thing to do is to diet. You know what? <laughs> Absolutely. Have any of you ever dieted? Let me just ask you this question. You dieted. 
How did that eventually work out for you? I mean, really. Uh, statistics say you actually bounce back and eventually you weigh more. And why is that? Because it's, you're trying to change your behavior without changing your beliefs. What you're doing is you're just saying, I'm going to be so tough, I'm going to be so disciplined that for six weeks I'm only going to drink milk. And after that time, boy, well, I have the body I just dream of or the Atkins diet or something like that. You know, it's just going to be, it's going to be a pain in the butt, but eventually I'll get there. But what happens is your mind's never changed. And so eventually you go back to eating exactly the same way and probably a little worse, and you gain all that weight back. So what uh, people who are in the health industry say, you've got to change the way you think about food. Don't think in terms of diet. Think in terms of eating healthy, of changing you know, what you snack on, those kinds of things. So anyway, we kind of know this, right? We know that uh, if you really want to change, it's up to belief. And so that's what Paul's going to continue to teach here. Going on to verse uh, 18, okay, so it says this. It says, uh, talking about the Gentiles, he's talking about now um, beliefs that lead to bad behavior. And so it's really interesting what he points out. He says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. Now, let me just point this out. This is kind of an interesting thing. He basically has kind of a descent of how we move into poor behavior. And it's so interesting because he starts not with our actions, but with our beliefs, the way that we think. So he says it starts when we have darkened understanding, when we're sort of blind to things. Then it descends into our hearts are hardened. When it says hardening of heart in the Bible is code for your personality has actually changed. The heart is the most central part of who you are. When it says a hardened heart, it says your personality actually changes. And then he says, then you give yourself over. Then you decide, you know what? Based on how I think about things now, I'm just going to give myself over. And then it says, and then you have poor behavior. So an example of this might be a guy who goes into working at a company, and the company might have kind of poor ethics, and they say, listen, for you to be successful, you're going to have to take shortcuts, you're going to have to compromise, you're going to have to shade the truth with your clients. These are the ways our company succeeds. It's the only way that you can get, for, get ahead. Well, when he first hears that, he's gonna, there's going to be something in him that says, well, that kind of sounds wrong. But if he hears that enough and enough, eventually what happens is he becomes sort of blinded to it. He hears it so much, he's not really, it's like, yeah. And then, eventually, if he hears it enough, his heart becomes hardened. In other words, his personality changes. And, st and he starts to think, you know what? Ends justifies, or, or rather, the means justifies the end, or the end justifies the mean. And if I can just act this way and get ahead, you know, it might not be the best thing, but I can do that, and I will be successful. And after all, isn't that a good thing for me to be successful? And so his heart is hardened, and then eventually, uh, he gives himself over to those practices. And then he acts poorly. But it starts in a belief. That's the point that Paul is making, is it starts with the way that he believes. And he says then that there is sort of this dissent. Then he turns around and he says, okay, so let me tell you how you ascent, how you move up, how things go in the right way, how you move toward good behavior. And so in verse 20, he says, that, however 
is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the, in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So let me just point out the ascent. It does not start with behavior modification. It starts with, are we all there? It starts with not behavior, but belief. It starts with belief. And so the first belief he says here is he said, the first thing that happened to you here in the city of Ephesus is you heard about Jesus, this guy from Galilee that lived a life, taught God's truth, died on a cross as an atonement, and was resurrected. You heard about that. You heard about that story. And then after that, you started being taught by Paul or any of the other teachers in Ephesus. You started to be taught the things that Jesus taught. You started to learn what God was expecting. You started to find out your identity in God. You started to be taught. And your mind, here it says, your mind started to change so you had a new attitude. You had new values. You started to say, you know what? This is the way I want my life to go. And then Paul's point at the end is he said, and your behavior changed. Because your mind changed, your behavior changed. And Paul says, that's how we change. We don't change by being tough. We don't change by trying really hard. We change because we let our mind change. And then our behavior changes. In both cases then, whether we make the wrong decisions and we make bad lifestyle choices, or we do the right thing, it always starts in what we believe. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to use a really interesting illustration or sort of metaphor as to how you can think about things. Okay, so this is starting with your mind. And he uses this terminology to take off and to put on, or to put off or to, and to put on. And of course, he is using the analogy of taking clothes off and then putting clothes on. So he's just using an illustration that everybody uses every day. You take your clothes off at certain times, you put new clothes on, sort of that process. And he's going to say, listen, I want you to learn in your mind how to take things off that are not appropriate, thinking that's not appropriate, behavior that's not appropriate, and I want you to think of how you put things on, behavior that's appropriate, thoughts that are appropriate, values that are good values. I want you to think like that. So let me just point, off, point out a couple of things, and then he's going to give us a bunch of examples of how this works, and this is going to be real interesting. Okay, so, all right, taking something off. Uh, I run, and uh, when I run, I sweat. And when I sweat, according to my family, I stink. So, okay, just a natural thing to have. And it's so interesting, because you know who cannot smell that? Me, of course. I come in, I'm like, I think I smell like a daisy. And Julie says, no, you don't. You smell like something else. And so uh, it's an interesting thing. Now, let's say Julie and I are going to go out, and we're going to go on a date, or we're going to go somewhere. And I say, oh, well, I know that I'm all sweaty. Let me just put on some nice clothes. And I just put them on over my sweaty clothes. How is that going to work? Not real well. We're probably not even getting out the door. Julie's like, you go with someone else. I'm not going with you. You stink. 
All right? So, you know, you need to take it off. Now, how does that relate to us? You know, a lot of us, um, and it's easy to do, what we think about is we think in terms of putting on sort of our Christian behavior or we put on sort of our Christian outlook when we go to church, but really during the days of the week, during our work time, during times in the house or with neighbors or, you know, the hobbies that we do, we don't take anything off. We just live exactly the way that we lived. And we think, well, but when I go to church, then I'll just put on kind of that righteousness, kind of the, that right behavior and that good attitude, and I'll smile, and I know how to play the church game. And here's what Paul would say, is Paul would say, you're making a fundamental error. You haven't taken off your stinky clothes yet. And you know what? There's something really disingenuous about just putting on nice clothes over stinky clothes. So he's saying, you got to take off the terrible clothes. You just got to take that off. But then it would be another mistake, and maybe even a more frightening mistake, if I came home after sweating and I said, well, I got to take these clothes off, and I take these clothes off, and then I say, Julie, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and she looks and she goes, I don't think so. And I know you don't even want to picture that. But, you know, that, that I mean, it, no, you... Kevin, it's great that you got those clothes off. It's great that you took a shower, but you've got to put something on. You just got to put something on. You got to go out with some clothes here. So, and, and sometimes we do that kind of a thing. We think, all right, well, I'm going to discipline up and I'm going to change this bad behavior. You know, I'm gossiping too much. I don't want to gossip so much. I'm going to change that behavior. I'm going to change that behavior. And we never move to put on the right behavior. It isn't just that God tells us don't gossip. God's going to tell us, use your mouth to encourage people. Don't just avoid ripping them. Use it to encourage people. In other words, he's going to say, it's not enough just to take it off. You've got to put it on as well. Now, most of us are good at one and not so good at the other. And all of us are different on that. Some of us sort of pretend at church because we know during the week we haven't taken anything off and then we come to church and we kind of pretend and for some of us that's a real problem some of you are sitting there and going that's mine and for some of you you work really hard to take things off but you're not putting anything on to replace that and so whatever the, the issue is Paul here is going to say you need to do both take it off take off the sweaty stinky clothes put on new clothes that's how I want you to think about this so here's what he's going to do and this this hopefully will be helpful. Here's what I want to do. We're going to rifle through five examples that he gives at the end of the book. This is very practical teaching. I want you to lock in on at least one of the examples for yourself. It should not be hard. All five of them are relevant to me. Just so you know, I relate to all five of these problems or all five of these sort of examples are very relevant to me. So I want you to lock on to one because that's what's going to be helpful to you. Okay, so here's the first one. He's going to start listing through these things that we are to take off and to put on, and you'll see how this works. It's kind of a cool thing. The first thing he's going to talk about is honesty, and it's in Ephesians 4.25. Let's read it together. It says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Okay, so this, I don't think this is hard. What do we take off? All right, what do we take off? All right, all right, this is not trick. Okay, this is really clear. So this is important if you want to understand it. Okay, so we take off falsehood. What do we put on? 
Truth. Speaking truthfully. Okay. So here's the first thing I want you to think about. Do any of you have a hard time speaking truthfully? Let's just mass confession. If you've ever, like in the last year, maybe you told a little lie. Really, guy, a lot of you are really godly. I can't believe. <laughs> you know, I think that that's probably, we'd all probably say, yeah, you know, sometimes I kind of deal with that issue. Okay. So now think about this. Why do you tell a false why do you lie? Why, do you, why are you not honest about things? Why do you do that? And if you think about it, when I think about it for me, one area that I'm not honest about is I hate confrontation. So if there's a problem with someone, I'm going to tend to downplay the problem and maybe not be totally honest with that person. All right? That's something that I know about myself. I'm not honest because I don't like confrontation. And you know what my thought is? there will be more unity between me and this other person if I'm not honest about it. Some people, and I can relate to this too, you're not honest about who you are as a person. You manage your image in such a way that you purposely distort to other people who you are. You either tell them things that might be kind of true, but you leave out a whole bunch of things that would give them the full picture and you just say, but they don't need to know that part. And so you sort of are involved in image management. And that's a kind of lying. And then sometimes we're just straight out liars. We just lie about a situation. Something happens and we just think it will be so much easier if I just don't tell the truth. That's the way we think about it. But this is so interesting. Paul doesn't just tell us, be truthful and don't lie. He gives us a reason. Because it starts in our mind. And what is the reason that he gives at the end of the verse? You should be truthful because why? Because we're all members of one body. In other words, he's saying because it leads to unity. When you lie, relationships break down. And we know that's true because the number one ingredient in a relationship is trust. And if you lie, relationships break down. And so Paul's going to say, listen, I'm not just telling you to be truthful and not to be false or not to lie. I'm telling you why. Because don't you want unity? Don't you want community? Don't you want to be locked in with other people with real harmony? Well, then you're going to have to be a truth teller. And all of a sudden we have the belief behind the action. I want unity. I guess I should tell the truth. Ah, awesome. All right, let's move to the next one. Anger. Any of you ever have an anger problem? Okay, we got more of you raising your hands. My goal is by the end of this, all of us will raise our hands to the thing. Okay, anger pro- Okay, all of us get angry from time to time. All right, now, what do you think of when you get angry? And let me tell you what I think of. It's not that big of a deal. It really isn't. I mean, okay, I lost my temper. I sort of flew off the handle a little bit. It's really not that big of a deal. And so here's what Paul's going to say. He's saying, I want you to take off what? Anger, but not exactly just anger. It's anger and do not sin. Sinful anger. In other words, anger is an emotion. It is a reaction, and it is not always sinful. It is possible to be angry without sinning. Difficult, but possible. But here's what Paul's saying. You've got to take off sinful anger And he wants you to put on, this is a little trickier, but what does he tell us about anger? Don't 
you know, sin in your anger, but what are we supposed to do? Before the sun goes down, take care of it. Resolve it. Resolve your anger. That's what we're to put on. Take off sinful anger. Resolve your anger. Now he's going to give us the why. What is the why? It's so weird. I mean, it does not make sense. What does he tell us? We give the devil a foothold. What a weird thing to say. How does that compute? I mean, I could see relationships break down. You're going to be isolated. You're going to feel guilty. Those are all things that happen. Here's what he says. When you do not resolve anger properly, you invite the devil into the situation. So you blow up with your spouse, and you're angry, and you hold on to that anger. Here's what Paul's saying. You've just said, hey, Satan, come on in. Want you to enjoy this relationship with my spouse, with me. We're going to do it together. And you're like, well, that was never my intention. And Paul's saying, but that's what happens. You blow up with your kids, or you blow up with your parents, or you blow up at work. What you're saying is, devil, come on in. I'm inviting you to be part of this. And you start looking. You go, guys, things at work aren't going so well. I'm going to pray against Satan. I'm going to pray that Satan leaves. You know what? He doesn't leave. He doesn't leave as long as the anger is not resolved. It says that the, dank, the, the, the devil has a foothold in your life when you have unresolved anger. Guy, is that a different way of thinking of things? We think it's not a big deal. And Paul says, no, you've invited the devil to be part of that relationship. That's a huge why. I don't want to do that. Great. Let's resolve the anger then. Let's do it the right way. All right, moving on to the next one. We're going to talk about stealing or work. And it says this in 428. It says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. And so what do we take off? We take off stealing. We put on work, right? Useful work. And what is the why going to be? The why is going to be that it benefits those who listen. Now, here's the number one thing you're going to think when I say you should not steal. You're going to say, I don't. I mean, you know, I stole when I was a kid. I went to CVS, and they had this really cool, you know, backpack thing, and I hid it under my clothes, and I walked out, but I swear I've not stole anything since that day, and I got caught, and it was terrible, and I don't steal anymore. And so we don't think we steal. And our problem is that we don't have a broad enough definition of what stealing is. So, have you ever at work not given the effort that is the appropriate effort for the fact that you're being paid for this job? Do you know what? That's stealing. Have you ever been late to a meeting and you're stealing somebody else's time? That's very convicting to me. I do that a lot. And I'm stealing from someone else. Have you ever gossiped about someone? You know what? You're stealing their reputation. Uh, have you ever done, pressed in on someone or pushed someone to do something that they really didn't want to do and you sort of either powered up or you manipulated them and you pushed them and pushed them and finally they did this thing that they didn't really want to do? You stole from them. Anytime you take something from someone that isn't yours and hasn't been given to you, you've stolen we have a problem with stealing. We do steal. And here's what Paul's going to say, is I want you 
to be very useful and diligent in your work. So instead of taking from people, you actually give to people, that you're actually a generous person. You show up early to a meeting so that you're totally ready to go. By the time they come in, you have blessed them with their time. You have given the people things that are generous. That's the call here. You want to be a generous person? Yeah, absolutely. I want to be known as a generous person. Well, then stop stealing and work hard because that's how you do it. That's the why. Generosity. Then we move to the next one, encouragement. Ephesians 4.29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And uh, you might have noticed, I read that pretty smoothly. It's because I've memorized that one because this is a problem for me. This is one of my problem areas of encouragement. It says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. You know what unwholesome talk in this context is? It's things like, uh, criticism, like sarcasm, things that pull people down, things that you say that might get a laugh, but it's at somebody's, somebody else's expense. I use sarcasm in the most impressive ways. When I'm frustrated in a situation because I don't like confrontation, I'll be sarcastic. In fact, all you need to know about me, if, if I'm sarcastic with you, it means I'm too gutless to confront you about something and I'm just going to be sarcastic about it. And here Paul's calling me out. He's saying, I don't want you to do that. That is not the way to behave. It really makes a difference. And so he says, instead of being sarcastic, instead of being critical toward people, I want you to put on uh, encouragement. I want you to think in terms of your mouth as an opportunity to build people up to help them become more of the person God wants them to be. You have the ability to do either or. And I want you to build them up. Don't you want to be that kind of person, the person that builds other people up? That's a great why. That's a great reason not to be sarcastic. And then finally, he's going to give the last one here. And this has to do with forgiveness or, in the negative, revenge. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he's going to say this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Those are the negatives. Those are the things to put off. And then put on, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. And here's the huge why. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. When you're wronged, when I'm wronged, the first thing is I have every right to get back at that person. And if I can't, I have every right to be bitter. I have every right to be bitter. And so I put on bitterness that leads to all these other things of the slander and the malice and the brawling and all, the, all these things that happen. And Paul is saying, take that off. Put on forgiveness and compassion and kindness because here's the bottom line. If anybody had a right to be bitter, Jesus had a right to be bitter for how you have treated him. And it was your sin that put him on the cross. If anybody has the right to be angry about something, to get revenge, Jesus did, and he didn't. And you're to be like him. That's a great why. That is a great why. So here's what Paul is saying. Change your beliefs, and it will change your behavior. But here's even a more fascinating thing. You can't do it on your own. 
It's a great story, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. He wrote these children's books, and in them, it's sort of a very elaborate allegory of the Christian life. And in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is one of the books, there's a character named Eustace. And Eustace, because he's been stubborn and he's been selfish, he's been turned into a dragon. Any of you remember that story? All right, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So he's a dragon, and he wants to become a little boy again. And so Aslan, who's the Christ figure in these stories, comes to him and he says, do you want to become a little boy? Uh, Again, do you want to go back to a boy? And even though it was true that being a dragon had its cool features, he was feared, he was very strong and powerful, people tended to do what he said, he was totally miserable. And he said, yes, I want to be a little boy. And so Aslan takes him to this pool, and he says, well, I'm going to have you bathe in this pool. But before you go in, you're going to have to get undressed. And he looks at him, he's just wearing his dragon skin. And he realizes that what Aslan's telling him to do is to take off this dragon skin. And so he sort of rubs at it, and sure enough, it starts to sort of flake and pretty soon peel, and pretty soon he has peeled off his dragon skin. And it's just sort of lying there, sort of like a snake skin when it peels. But then he looks, and he's still a dragon. So he does it again, and he's still a dragon. And he does it again, and he's still a dragon. And every time it felt great, it felt good to get that off, but he was still a dragon. And finally, Aslan said to him, you know what? You're never going to be able to do it. Do you want me to do it for you? And Eustace kind of knows that this is probably going to go a little differently than how it had gone before, and maybe this isn't going to be quite as easy. But he's desperate, so he says, yes. So Aslan takes one of his claws. He's lying. He takes one of his claws, and he rips right down the center of his stomach. And, he, and, and Eustace said, it felt like he was ripping into my heart. And he pulled the skin off. And it was the most painful thing he had ever gone through. He pulled it all the way off and he took it off of his body. And it was down on the ground. And then Aslan said to him, jump into the water. He jumped into the water. And it was like, you know, have you ever gone into salt water with sunburn? That's how it felt. But then he looked. And he had become a boy again. And here's the truth of taking off and putting on. It's hard. And it's painful. God never said it would be easy. But here's the amazing thing that Paul tells us. It's possible. You can become a different person. You can overcome anger. You can become an encourager. You can become someone that tells the truth or forgives people because God's working in you to do that. That's your new identity. That's who you are now. You can do that. So how do you do that? How do you do it? It starts with changing your mind. And here's what I want to encourage you. Maybe some of you today have never met Jesus. And that's where it starts. It starts with becoming someone who's in Christ, someone who's met Jesus. And to do that, really, all you have to do is say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want the life that you give. I want you to forgive me my sins. And if you do that, Jesus promises to come in. He promises to make you a new person, to give you a new identity. And you can just do that by praying. 
For some of you, you've done that, but you've never learned really everything that God wants you to know or the things that God wants you to know. You're, you don't really study the Bible. You don't really read those things. You don't put yourself in a place to do that. And the problem is your mind's not being renewed. You're not changing your mind. And that's on you. He's given you his word. He's given you opportunities. There's so many opportunities to learn things now. Start changing your mind. Start changing your mind. And finally, put yourself in community with other people that are doing it. I mean, coming here is great, but you're not going to meet a lot of people. This is not the ideal place for life change. A smaller group is. And I want to encourage you. We talked about Rooted. Rooted comes up in the fall. Get involved in Rooted. It's one of the greatest ways to change. Talk to people around here that have gone to Rooted. They'll tell you, my life was changed. Get into community with people. That's on you. You can do that. And it will change your mind. Then it will change your behavior. Would you stand for closing prayer? Lord, we stand before you, and when we're honest, we recognize that there's a lot of areas that we still uh, fall short on. And even though you've changed our identity, even though you've made us a new creature, uh, it's true that we fall back into old habits. We do things the way we used to do them or the way that society kind of tells us to do them. And we're just calling that out for what it is. And we're confessing that and admitting that. And Lord, further, uh, I just ask that you would help us to commit to this taking off and putting on. Because we are a people who want to be truth tellers. We want unity. We are a people that want to handle anger the right way and not to give the devil a foothold in our lives, in our relationships. That's what we want. We want to be people that don't steal, but actually are generous. We're known for generosity. Lord, we want to be encouragers, not those that are sarcastic or that tear other people down. Uh, We want to be people that our lips are like medicine. They bring healing and love to other people. That's what we want. And Lord, we don't want to be people that are full of vengeance, people that are bitter, that can't forgive. We want to be like Jesus, really good at forgiving, of turning the other cheek, of being kind and compassionate. That's who we want to be. And Lord, we pray that you, in your strength and your power, would help us to take off and to put on. And we are so grateful that you're committed to that. This week, Make this a week, Lord, where we're really conscientious of becoming the person you want us to be. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you out on the patio.